brought to you by Penguin. I know from writing myself to cut books some slack, you know? Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. Here we chat to authors about how they get inspired. Now, each episode, our guest chooses a handful of objects that they have used to spark their creativity. And then we explore why, of course. Now, this time, my guest is an author, playwright, academic and journalist. The way into my guest creativity today, as well as her chosen subjects, is via her 2014 novel, How to Be Both. Now, it won the Costa Novel of the Year and was shortlisted for the Man Booker, amongst many other accolades. How to Be Both is a novel of two parts. One, a Renaissance painter thrust into the modern world, and another, a teenager who recently lost her mother. Both stories, although separate, intertwine, and it's now been made into a brand new audiobook alongside another eight of her titles. My guest today is, of course, the wonderful Ali Smith. Hello, Ali. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. It's great to have you here. Does your fiction, Ali, help us understand the world or does it help you understand the world? You know, I could talk to you for hours about the fictions I have loved over my life and which have helped me and, you know, make make whatever it is that the the journey is that we make. Um, I can't answer whether mine do that. Um, I only know that when I'm working on them, then I have to just try and find the way that it wants to be. Uh, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm writing or when you're putting to get together a book, I've heard writers in the past say this thing, which I agree with, which is that it is as if the book is already there and you have to find it. You have to uncover it. You have to, as if, dig it up and either piece it back together if it's a broken thing that you've dug up or uh, brush it down and hope that it will you know, hold together and has held together from whenever it was conceived beyond hmm. you know your ken but i've also heard writers say that um they are fully in control that you are dictators you're not having something that lands in your lap and then you put it out into the world you control it no you, you have, you're in dialogue with it uh, in exactly the same way as if you dug up something that was in pieces and you were like where does that piece go and I think about trying to write anything it's very hard to talk about uh, because it's a process that takes place a great deal in the subconscious but when I think about trying to write anything you know the moment it comes alive which is when you begin to argue with it and it begins to argue back ah, with you right. and then something starts to spark which is about connection and so it comes you know you you know you know you're you know you're on the right track you kind of know you kind of know you've you know you're on the proper road with it okay if i'm not overstretching the word argument then is it your job to win that argument it's a dialogue with it and, and it with you you know I'm, i keep thinking of grace paley when uh, saying that folk who haven't read grace paley uh, please go and find her she was mm. she was a new york short story writer uh, one of whose most famous stories was called a conversation with my father and it's about um, an aged father and a younger daughter. The younger daughter is a writer. And the father is saying, why don't you write the kind of stories I like? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're having an argument. Like, you know, like de Maupassant did. Why are you writing these stupid stories <laughs> about a woman who's up a tree, you know, um, and that's supposed to be political? What are you doing? You know, because Paley is a, is a great activist as well as a short story writer, a great activist writer as well. Anyway, they are arguing. He is dying. He is not dead. They are so alive in the argument, um, and that's the 
that's the root, the, the, the kind of force of life. And if all through Grace Paley's stories, you find this, that, that that's sort of point, which looks like standoff, which isn't standoff at all, which is discussion, which is the point where argument and dialogue are the same thing and at the same time are persuading each other one way or another to allow for each other. Is writing a, an invigorating process or invigorating and draining in equal measure? It's it's invigorating sometimes. It's draining when you're you know when you're stuck when right. you don't know what you're you, you know what you're quite what you're going to do next or what it's going to do next. So you wait. It's a funny thing to always feel like a beginner, and I do. I always feel like I don't know where I am or what I'm doing with whatever the thing is that you start, and then you start, and then whatever it is that thing is that is which we, which happens when we write, it starts to happen, and then it's the kind of invigorating. That means that time disappears. It's the, it's the same as when you when you're reading actually and reading something that's mm. really taken you out of time. It's it's also it's also very like lo- love actually. It's one of those things whereby time disappears and you look at your your column and you go, oh, what just happened to the rest of that day? You did a you know a PhD. You've you've won multiple awards. You're very successful at what you do. So I just wonder how you continually take yourself out of your comfort zone because being a beginner at anything writing feels anything like that. takes you out of your comfort zone the point at which a word appears on either a screen or a page um is the point at which the comfort zone disappears and you're like what's this what's the, what's going to happen what's this about what comes next mm. and that's it's wonderful there's a famous speech that pinter made uh, where he talks about the very the single word dad on a page someone saying it in the dark in a theater dad and then you do, it's in the dark, you don't even know who's on the stage, but you you simply know that there's a relationship, that there's something that's happened, that there's a, a who is speaking to the father, where is the father, is the father there? You know, what's the, the questions that arise around the, the placing of a single word, and then another word, and then another word, and the questions that arise as soon as the words begin to join up. Let's start uh, with your first object, um, which are figures. Greek gods, goddess yeah. figures. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about these figures. There are on my desk two little brass <laughs> figures. They look like people, and yet they're um, they also look like little gods or goddesses. They're copies of ancient figures found in Greek tombs, and you can buy them readily in you know shops in the middle of Hania in Crete, and put them on your desk. And I have a couple on my desk. Um, and that's why, and, and that's you. You bought them in that very place, did you? I did. Um, you can buy them all. You can buy them in any, probably in any museum in Greece. Um, they're they're little. They're metal. They're quite. You know what's not, what's particularly nice about the feel of them is they're heavy in the hand. Um, they have a weight, and yet they're very small. They both have their arms in the air. Uh, they're sort of straight out from the elbow and then up, as if in a kind of embrace or a kind of hieroglyphic description of something. They look like they're in mid speech because they've got their hands up like this as if talking or or saying it was this long <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> or, or it was this short or or you know as if a, a fish or other things depending um and they sit on my desk and they are uh you know what should we say they are they are little metal people and or gods they were a fairly unruly bunch the greek gods and goddesses were they and they were uh not particularly likable from what my son tells me. We're late in the 
in late in the centuries to, to come to likable gods. I mean, gods are powerful. <laughs> yes. So, so, um, so, and and powerful will always be tricky. You know, power comes with responsibility, but they seem to absolve themselves of any responsibility. They kind of answer themselves with different with other gods. That's what's interesting about the gods is that there's a there's a kind of a balance in the gods. They, you know, if if one god will do one thing, another mm. god will do another thing, and then, so that if you read through Ovid. And metamorphosis, we're talking about change, we're talking about being able to be multiplicitous enough to, to withstand the changes that happen to a single life in a, in a single lifetime. The gods will visit us repeatedly and change us into whatever it is they've decided to change us into, but with, I don't know, with luck, with with energy, with with the righteousness of things, depending on which of those turns up in our lives, um, we can, you know, sometimes we can be saved, or sometimes we can be turned into something else, or someone will swoop down and say, "It's okay, you know, you're you're a cow, you're a river, you're a laurel tree," and the gods have visited. And what can we do about it? What What fascinates you about the ancient world? It, what fascinates me about what has reached us from the ancient world is that it hasn't gone away. The heart of myth. It's about survival. And in that survival, it's a kind of comedy with much pathos in the comedy. Mm. I think that's what I like about the myths. They are never ending. They will always be relevant. These things never were, but but are always, as one of the, the, the Greek commentators wrote. Let's move on to object two. It's a quote from one of your favourite writers, uh, something that they said to you once yes. and you wrote it down. Tell me what the quote is first. I've got a piece of paper on my desk and it says, write me a fresh book. It's something that one of my favourite writers, and I, I'm just loath to say who it is because it's really personal to me. It's a really, it's a, it's like a, it's an engine. You don't give your engine away. I keep mm. it on my desk. Someone once said to me, write me a fresh book. So I wrote them a fresh book. <laughs> what does the word <laughs> fresh mean in this fresh. context? It's like... Food that has not gone off. It's like, <laughs> okay, <right. laughs> it's, as opposed you know, to a rotten, mouldy, stinky book. You mean? Yeah. You know, you know what? You know what? When when all those shops put fresh on the outside of a packet, yeah. and you know, and you can leave that rocket in your fridge, and it's still going to say fresh, <laughs> whether you open it or not. It's still going to say, you know, fresh. You know, in two months' time, that still say fresh, and it wouldn't be fresh. To take that writer's notion of words and to take the word fresh, for me, it means something alive. That note of us of spring or of cut grass that's in the air and you you are you know sensually that it's alive how do you retain the freshness when you're months in and that dialogue has stalled it doesn't it doesn't do that dialogue doesn't stall that's what's exciting about dialogue is that dialogue is is uh, is has that life about it that it keeps going someone says something someone else says something else even if there's a silence the silence says something else i was thinking more about the dialogue between the author and the mm. piece of work rather than the dialogue within the book itself. Because you really? mentioned about that dialogue that you have with the with the process yeah. itself. That's that's a case of keeping yourself fresh and not losing your, your mojo, your confidence, whatever it is that makes us sit down to do it in the first place. Uh-huh. Um, you come to it and you do not diss it by not being ready for it. Right, right. Or up to it. You have to be up to it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, are you brimming with confidence? No, never. Absolutely never. It's a, it's a, it's a constant argument. Ah, <laughs> ah, we got there. We got there. Constant argument in yes. my life yes. as to, as to, to, you know, to say anything at all, uh, whether written down or out loud. So, what do the disparaging voices say 
to the confident voices of Ali Smith? I don't know that there are disparaging... If there's a disparaging voice, I could probably have a, an argument or a just dialogue with it. There we go. <laughs> 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 Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Often, there's, often there's, you know, there's, there's, yes. you know there's, it's, not, it's not a case of voice. Uh, voice is always telling a story. That's what's good about voice. Voice will always uh, mean that there's, you know, that there's words that are telling you a story. Even, you know, it doesn't matter whether the voice seems to have no personage. Voice has personage that's what voice is so uh, it's 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 much more to do with you know your own knackeredness or your own um preconception or your own i don't know your own your own uh questioning of what words you know are doing and how to get to them how easily do you relax your mind by reading and i love film i, I watch a lot of film um have and, you watched um, tenet yet I haven't seen Tenet. I haven't right. seen it. Okay. I'm I'm longing to see it. Mm. I watched it three times over the weekend to try and get my three times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, is did you what, what did you think the third time? Were you enjoying it? I enjoyed it the first time. Okay, yeah. but I mean, the third time, were you enjoying it? Yes, because Good. I was trying. Well, I was trying to chase it, I, and this, I guess, goes back to writing as well. Is that once I decided to relax into it and mm-hmm. not try to work mm-hmm. out necessarily everything that Christopher Nolan was trying to do in it. Mm-hmm. I reveled at the spectacle perhaps more than I reveled at, in the narrative. So once you gave yourself over, yeah, to yes. it, rather, rather than yes. what is it wanting or asking yes. me or what is it that I'm supposed to think about this? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that is relaxing. Yeah. That is that is like letting go of your preconceptions. That's, that's yeah. a wonderful thing. If it's if it, if you're liking it the third time round, then this sounds you know it's going to. I mean, I knew I know it's going to be a good film, but hey, third time round on, on the same weekend, you know, the more I think that was a bit intense. To be fair, Ellie, I don't think was it? seven was and a it? half hours of watching it, but you know, <laughs> uh, it's a bit intense. To be fair, did you do it on the trot? Did you do it I, one after the other? I no, I did it. I did it on a Thursday, a Friday, and a Saturday. So I didn't do okay. it like in one day. I'm looking forward to it. I have to say. Um, why haven't you seen it? If you love film, because there was so much talk about it. Because there's a pile of stuff that I want to see. Right. It's just in the pile. Um, so, yes. no, I will see it. And um, I'm looking forward to it. This last while, I've been watching a lot of silent film. I've just discovered this, this watching these films by this uh, Swedish director called Morris Stiller. And there's a, a long film called The Gust of Burling Saga. They're so vivid. I cannot believe it. They're extraordinary films. When were were they made? In in the 20s. Uh, And then Stiller, who is the man who discovered Garbo, um, and he took her to uh, Hollywood and then was supposed to be working with her in Hollywood, but decided he hated the Hollywood system, so came home. He died young, and Garbo went on from her discovery in Gusta Berling saga to um, become Garbo. Okay, what emotional connection... Did you find with these films then? Why? Pure story, and yet um, a, a kind of poetry and movement. Silent film from from the get go, from the point at which narrative started to surface in film, um, became about the telling in as little as possible, as as clearly and cleanly as possible of a story by an image followed by another image followed by another image. And the revelation uh, of something languageless, which then has its own language again, and is a kind of 
description of the language of narrative without that without language. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's I, extraordinary. Deeply, deeply, deeply interesting excites me. Did it already buy into your attitude to how you write, or do you think it will influence going forward your thoughts on I how don't know. you write? I mean, I, I've, I've always, um, I think since I was a kid, I've, I've liked film and um, liked when I could see it, silent film or early film. So um, I, I think it's just always been a, um, you know, a, 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 what should you say, a conduit for me. I've just always loved it. Why do you have a piece of broken crockery? Oh, um, yeah, this is your object number three. I will t- I'll tell you about that one. I found it um, on the beach at Cramond, um, which is a particularly literary beach because um, Muriel Spark mentions it in The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. It's a, it's a, it passes through her book lightly and very comically. I was once uh, in a very bad way because my mum had just died and I was on the beach at Cramond, on the, on the shore, and found a tiny piece of blue and white crockery which had been broken off presumably a plate, a very long time ago, whose edges were so smoothed. It was a triangle, but it was a, it was a rounded triangle. It was a smooth round triangle. And inside the smooth round triangle of white with blue uh, design were circles and triangles in a kind of, in a piece of, you know, broken plate. The loveliness of it again in the hand and the way in which it had made its own shape of itself by weather. And yet was still about shape and featured shapes on it and had smoothed its own shape, but yet kept its sharpness. Um, it's, a, it's a lovely little broken thing. Now, your book, How to Be Both, Ali, as I mentioned earlier, has been made into a brand new audio book read by you. So new, in fact. It's, it's, it's... not read by me. Oh. It's not going to be read by me. Oh. We've discovered that this studio that I'm in talking to you now um, is too um, permeable um, and that a home recording won't do for How to Be Both. So um, a, a wonderful reader will read it instead of me and I, I wish them luck. Oh, okay. And love. I wish them love, actually, because good on them. Looking forward to hearing it. Okay. So I guess following on from that, now that we're not going to hear you reading from the audio (laughs) book, are we going to hear you read from it now? Do you want me to? Just an extract that you could read for us now, if that's all right, Ali. Why don't you choose a page at random? Oh, (laughs) wow. That's... (laughs) That's so good. Okay. Uh, there, there are 300 and No, I know, exa- I know. Yeah, exa- I know exactly how many oh, pages. Uh, I'm <laughs> you for... say that with weariness. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm just, this, what a challenge. What a challenge. I, this has never happened in the history of the Penguin podcast where the author has said to me, the, 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 the silly chap with the microphone, why don't you pick a page and we'll go from there? Um, yeah. Because it is my age. And it starts with a new sentence, 49. Good for you. This is a great page. In, in, in my copy that I've got here of How to Be Both, um, it starts with the um, medieval part. You know that How to Be Both is in two forms. Okay, so my version of it, it mm-hmm. doesn't start with... So mm-hmm. Mine starts with, though it is embarrassing and excruciating when someone won't play your game, George gets over herself. Ah, uh, you see, ah. mine's mine. Mine is, oh. mine is the, the Francesca del Cosa part. It uh, starts. The great Alberti, who published in the year in which my mother birthed me, the book for all picture makers, and wrote in it the words, let the movements of a man, as opposed to a boy or a young woman, be ornato with more firmness, understands the bareness and the pliability it takes oh, to be both. The great Cennini, though, in his handbook on colours and picture making, 
finds no worth and no beauty of proportion in girls or in women of any age except in the matter of hands in themselves, since the delicate hands of girls and women providing they're young enough are more patient, he says, than those of a man from spending so much more time indoors, which makes them more suited to making the best blue. Myself, I went out of my way then to be expert at the painting of hands and be good at the grinding of blue and the using of blue both. There were others like me, painters, I mean, who could do my particular both. We knew each other when we saw each other. We exchanged this knowledge by glance and by silence, by moving on and going our own ways. And most anyone else who saw through the art of what some would call our subterfuge and others our necessity, graced us with acceptance and an equally unspoken trust in the skill we must surely possess to be so beholden to be taking such a path. That was a reading from How to Be Both by my guest Ali Smith. The audiobook will be available to buy on the 11th of February and my sources tell me that it will in fact be read by Katie Lung. There's a link in the programme notes of this very episode. Thank you so much, Ali, for doing that completely uh, off the bat. Your final object is a small coin, object number four. This is an interesting thing about um, the fake and the real. Years and years and years ago, uh, an acquaintance of mine, I didn't know her very well, gave me a little brown coin about the size of, it's like it's bigger than a penny and smaller than a two pence piece. And it says on it, 1716 on one side. And on the other side, it says, only believe. And it says, only believe, only be, leave as in the only top, the B in the middle, and the L-I-E-V-E at the bottom, in writing which looks like it could have come from the 1700s, or it might not have come from the 1700s at all, and it might be a fake. Now, I don't know what this coin is. Uh, uh, she told me it was a catechism coin, which had been picked up in Queensbury, and sure enough, there are letters on the coin that say TQF, and then give the date, 17-something, and the other side says only believe. So I have this coin, and... It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's got words on it. It's got letters which could or could not mean something that I think I know. And it's got a date on it. And it's very precious to me. And, it's you know, it's one of the things that if the house were burning down, I would take with me. Are you by nature a hoarder? No. In fact, the, the opposite. I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm a, I would like to get rid of her. Right. <laughs> as, as it were. <laughs> a new terminology that we've <laughs> yeah, had to get rid of. Her. Okay. 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 <laughs> how can I, okay. how can I, where can I get rid of this? Or? Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. But one thing you must surely be surrounded by and, and find it difficult to presumably sell or give away books. Oh yeah. It is difficult. Um, it's funny because there's a time in my life when I thought I would never give away books. Um, and now I'm, you know, in my late 50s and I, right. <laughs> I've given away quite a lot of books. Right. As we go towards the other end of our lives, we know that there's only so much time left. And how mm. many of those books will we ever... That's, I don't know if uh, people listening uh, will know that astonishing Borges poem about thinking of a library and knowing that the books in it have had the page opened once and may never be opened again in your lifetime by you. It's such a, an image for a metaphor for the a real thing to say about standing in your own library, looking at the books, thinking, OK, so what would I take with me um, if I were moving to one room somewhere and could only have eight of these writers? Who would I take? What if I could only take six? You know? And the, the, the funny thing is that those books that we revisit and revisit and revisit over our lives change with us 
and I have found can be quite different when we go back to them. So books themselves change over time and we, in our relationship with them, our dialogue or argument with them, we uh, shift with them and they shift with us too. So it would not be a hardship to come down to a very small library with wonderful writers in it with whom you could always dialogue. I mean, you were talking about six books. I'm only going to give you one as your library, very sadly, and I hope this never happens, starts to heat up with flames all around and you can grab one book. Which would be the book that you would grab, Ali? Is this like um, Desert Island? This is when you can take Shakespeare anyway and then choose another book. Yeah, there's no way you're taking the Shakespeare, no. Do you know what? I kind of, I think I'll probably just take the book I'm reading um, at the time um, if I'm enjoying it because I know that... that Wherever I'm going to go, um, I will be fighting for libraries, um, uh, so that so that if um, I don't have library access to the books I would like to read, then I will be co- causing uh, you know a great fury and and knocking on doors of people all the time, saying, "Where's my library? Where's the library for everybody? Where's all the books? Why can't I get to? Why don't I have access to?" You know. What is that book at this moment in time then? Oh, okay. Uh, that's complicated because I'm reading two or three books at once at the moment. Um, let's see, which one of those would I take? Aha. I'm reading a writer I hadn't read before, and she's uh, writing now, and she's just wonderful. Her name's Michelle de Kretzer. Have you read her? No. Michelle no. de Kretzer is a, a, um, an Australian Sri Lankan, Sri Lankan Australian writer oh. whose books are really just. Brilliant. Uh, um, I'm going to send, again, anybody who hasn't read her to a book called The Life to Come, which is one of the best novels I think I've possibly ever read. Wow. And, uh, it's, I know, it's really, really good. It is, as you move through it, a critique of the novel, of the Australian novel, and of why we have novels and how lives work out in history and in the stories that get told that become history. And it is such a lovely, good... Uh, I've just started her uh, another novel of hers called Questions of Travel, um, and that's the book I take with me. Interestingly, mm. when I was a, a Radio 1 DJ back in the days and I used to listen to a lot of music, I had to listen to a lot of it, each song had a minute. And if I mm. wasn't in by a minute, it wasn't going to happen. I understand. Right? Mm. Can you apply a similar, not a minute, of course, you can't read for a minute and then go, right, I'm not into this, but can you apply a similar principle in your own life to reading? Because you're obviously a voracious reader, but how long do you know before you know that it's it's not for you? I, I tend to be quite patient um, uh, with um, my own impatience, as it were, because it, sometimes a book doesn't come together until the... Say the, say the last third, or even sometimes, oh, some, you know, sometimes a book doesn't come together to its very last page, uh, for which I can give you as an example, a book called Reunion by a writer called Fred Ullman, um, who um, was who only wrote one novel. And the, this one novel he wrote is very, very, very slim, and you are reading it, and the novel goes along, and then you get to the, turn the last page, where there's a couple of paragraphs on the very you know top of the blank page because that's its end, and it is breathtaking. And up to that point, it was a good novel, and then it's breathtaking. So you, there's, there's there's it's not that I would ever have been impatient with Ullman because I wouldn't because he's a wonderful a wonderful writer for me. But uh, my impatience will will give if there's something that I really really want to read 
and I'll put I'll put down that book that I'm not getting along with and maybe come back to it later. I, I, I find it very hard to just stop and give books away because I, I I tend to think it's my it is my fault if I'm not you know going with a book, um, then it's you know it's it's most likely it's my fault. You know. That's a strange way to look at it, that it's your no, fault. Because it's, you know, it's no, the author's it, job to connect with you. And if it hasn't connected with you, it's failed in its purpose. It's not that. It's that sometimes you, you know, sometimes you're not in the mood to be connected by that particular writer or that particular book. And there might be a different book and a different day in which you will be. I know from writing myself to cut books some slack, you know. Yeah. Like you, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't think you yeah. cut yourself any slack when you're writing. No, but no, but I know that, you know, if, if you know just, you know, out will go the book. And if it doesn't hit you on that that time, doesn't you don't like it, whatever, then okay, let it go. But you know, if you if you cut it some slack, maybe you'll like it later, you know? Mm. As if you have the time to return back <laughs> as if you Ali Smith have the time to return back to a book in 2015 you went oh, oh I'll come God. back to that at some point listen Ali it's been such a pleasure simply trying to keep up with your extraordinary brain for the last Stop it. hour We're see. no it's the truth it's true I, I interview so many people but this has been brilliant I feel like because as I can't go to a physical gym I literally feel like I've just been to a brain gym for the last uh, of the last hour. Thank you. Take care, Ali. Thank you so good much. Good to talk to you. And good to talk to you. And before we go, don't forget to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast, comment, rate, and most of all, share. I'm almost begging you. It helps us make more of these. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Thank you. On the Road with Penguin Classics is a new podcast hosted by me, Henry Elliott. I'll be taking a stroll around some extraordinary literary locations in the company of remarkable readers. In this first series, we make a Canterbury Tales pilgrimage with the poet Patience Agbarby. She was one of the reasons I think I became a writer, actually, meeting a character that just stepped off the page so fully formed. We shop for flowers with Mrs Dalloway and the biographer Alexandra Harris. She was very interested in clothes and how we try things on and how clothes give you new character. The frock consciousness, she called it. We digress with Tristram Shandy and the screenwriter Frank Cottrell Boyce. The book is about being born wrong and this is about we are standing where he was buried badly. And we step into George Eliot's Mill on the Floss with the novelist Louis de Bernier. You expect the place to be a mill and actually it isn't. It has been fictionalised, turned into another house than it is. If you love reading, then I hope you'll enjoy exploring the worlds around these marvellous books. Search for On the Road with Penguin Classics wherever you get your podcasts.